Welcome to Imagine This Podcast. A conversation show from Imagine MKE, where we talk to creative leaders in Milwaukee and beyond to highlight all the incredible transformative power of their work in our region. We hope that after listening to the pod, you'll be able to imagine our city's arts and culture ecosystem and all the awesome artists, organizations, and creative assets within it in a new way. I'm David Lee. I'm Lindsay Sheridan. And I'm Elizabeth Gasparka. I just feel like it's a game of chicken about who's <laughs> going to start. And without without spoiling it, I'm back. Welcome, everybody. Back to Imagine This Podcast. After a two-week break, I'm back with you all. Welcome back, David. Don't do that with the pen. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm a fidgeter. We are, David and I are in the office in person, so I get to bother him right next to him. Elizabeth is at home, so we're approaching hybrid podcast recording. <laughs> Wish us luck, everyone. Wish us luck. That's right. May or may not go well. Welcome. Welcome back, David. How was the trip? It was incredible. It was great to be back at home. It was great to see uh, my parents and, and my cousins and to be in San Francisco for a, a, a week or so. And my God, it was cold there. Oh, really? Super cold. And foggy. fireworks, foggy too. Mm-hmm. Fireworks on the pier mm-hmm. turned out to be just like an alien light show. Did not look like, <laughs> uh, did not look like fireworks. But mm-hmm. I also heard there were no fireworks here at all either. So speaking of fog, we, have you gotten your sailing credential yet? Or has the fog, did the fog <laughs> impede that? The fog impeded it. And I'm still not mm-hmm. licensed to take anybody out on light air uh, because it's either been too windy, too foggy, or too something. Mm-hmm. So if David pulls up in a sailboat and says, climb aboard, don't do, <laughs> don't it. do it. He is unlicensed. I'm unlicensed. Or you should arrest me. Right? Like, or you <laughs> like should a, arrest me. Like a lake, a lake citizen's arrest. <laughs> a maritime citizen's arrest. That, that's international waters. doesn't count. <laughs> well, you should really get that certification so that we can record Imagine This Pod on location. Yes, on a, on boat. a boat. That would be awesome. Yeah. Imagine This Podcast Sailing Edition. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Coming like soon. You know who else is back in our email? We had a lovely little email from longtime host, first time emailer, one MacArthur Antigua. He actually, came in. He actually mm-hmm. used the pod at Imagine MP <laughs> email address, despite <laughs> definitely knowing our personal email addresses and phone numbers, which is really charming. Yeah. <laughs> you spoke about how much he enjoyed hearing from Luca, the magician, and from Cindy, our outgoing public ally. So that was very sweet and how much he misses our culture of joyful abundance. I hear working for the, the former president is not as joyful. Well, oh, it's got, oh. it's got a little more importance to it, perhaps. I bet I bet his sports metaphors are more welcomed there, though. That might be true. More it, embraced. You know, working maybe for, for 44 is uh Maybe a little less joyful, but at least when he comes on Zooms, people cheer for him, whereas I don't get any of that. None of us get any of that, do we? No, no. <laughs> Ho-hum. Well, well, thanks for tuning in, listeners. It's going to be a, a great a great week. But before we jump into teeing up our guest for this week, Milwaukee's a film town. We got, we got films, films on the mind. Film is a medium. We have an incredible interview coming up with uh, Santana Wilson-Coleman, who's one of the producers of an incredible documentary called When Claude Got Shot. And it was made out of 371 Productions, which is a Milwaukee-based production company. The film is directed by Brad Lichtenstein. 
and uh, Santana is going to be on the pod to talk about the the film. But you know, before we actually get into get into it with with Santana, I really wanted to talk a little bit about like how the medium of film really kind of like engages engages empathy. people empathy. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. You know, this was on my mind just this past weekend getting into watching a a documentary series, maybe documentary series is the wrong phrase, but an educational series that Brene Brown put together. And we we talk about our interest in Brene occasionally at the office, (laughs) but the series was based on her book, Atlas of the Heart. And it was kind of diving into our basic inability oftentimes. And especially I think in this era of like distrust and disconnection of not being able to really understand or access as many emotions. Um, you know, she started out by sharing about some research they had done, uh, asking people to track and name emotions over time and the average number of emotions that folks could name, like put a name to was three, um, hmm. just in their everyday life. It was like happy, sad, and angry. <laughs> and there are so many more emotions than that, right? And so much more nuance. And so in this case, you know, check out the, the show if this is something that interests you. But what struck me was that she delves into the meaning of like 30 something emotions during the special and Mm -hmm. uses film clips as the medium to explain them. You know, Mm -hmm. there's nothing I think as powerful as seeing and feeling like cathartically an emotion through, through the lens of someone else on, on stage or in film or whatever that puts you in a different headspace and you might not be willing to access day to day. You know, I think for me, I can definitely point to times when like a song or the end of a movie made me cry and you kind of suddenly go, oh, I didn't realize I needed to cry. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like that's clearly buried in there. It's not necessarily that you're responding to that topic of the song or whatever. Maybe you are, but maybe it's just that it's, that mm-hmm. it's digging it's- something up. Um, and so that just kind of made me curious about um, from both of you, maybe you have a story of a time when a documentary, since we're since we're interviewing a documentary filmmaker or or a piece of art, made you access some new information or some emotion that might be difficult to otherwise. Mm. Yeah, I'm sort of of the mindset that film is the greatest medium of art because it combines all art forms, like you referenced, Lindsay, sound and music and writing and performance and composition and obviously visual art, photography. I just find it to be so immersive. And documentary features, there are a few that stand out to me as pretty impactful, but I have to say in recent times, the most impactful was the social dilemma. Hmm. I have always been a person who's (laughs) you know, kind of drawn to social media and drawn to the feeling of community that can be, I guess, not found there, but chased there. And, you know, I've dabbled in representing my life, you know, across social media platforms over the years to greater or lesser extents. But I always had this kind of queasy noticing, I guess, in my own life that the more I was investing in social media and viewing other people's lives and, you know, kind of downloading my own experiences into that space, the more disconnected from real life I felt. And the more, I guess I felt like a cog in some sort of machine that I wasn't fully understanding. And the social dilemma 
really laid that bare <laughs> really really uh kind of spelled that out for me i think the most striking thing about that that film is yeah the way it toggles between creatively representing a young man's kind of journey and and experience with social media and then has actual real life you know former google engineers weighing in on what they see as the dubious and you know frankly pretty frightening and disturbing implications of the way the internet is designed mm. and the way we are designed to desire more and more of it. So I say this all as a marketing professional <laughs> who <laughs> is often on social media channels, yep. but I do so with, you know, a, yeah, I guess a sense of boundary and a sense of intentionality in the way I interact. David, anything, uh, coming to mind for you yeah you know i, I think for me the the one the the one documentary that really sort of strikes me and that, that that has really stuck with me is um you can probably still get this online on youtube it's the 1968 cbs news special report on hunger in america and it is the documentary that basically is based on a, a couple of doctors who went through mississippi to document kind of real starvation level hunger in America. And it launched essentially a generation of hunger fighters uh, launching a bunch of child nutrition programs and federal nutrition programs to address this fact that like these kids were being born with just like, like with abject malnutrition in, mm. in America, right? And it won the Peabody Award in 1968, changed millions of minds, and a, a nation was aghast at, at, at the subsistence level at which some of the people have, had been living in through our rural South. And it really it created a push to eradicate severe malnutrition in America. And it was actually largely successful, right? Like they were able to make institute programs at the federal level that made that kind of hunger and that kind of malnutrition virtually non-existent in America, which is incredible. And, and the, the, the documentary, which follows a couple of the doctors sort of like seeing these kids uh, in these rural health clinics is really devastating. And at the same time now, you know, 50 years later, it's curious to see that, you know, for those of those of you who all know my, my previous history in, in fighting hunger, there were still some similar issues that remain insofar as malnutrition in America, right? That like, while we were able to solve hunger as sort of a calorie problem, we've never not really solved the nutrition problem. And that's a much more difficult thing to show, right? Because when you show, when you, when you see some of the, the, the sort of hunger documentaries now, they're really, they, they don't show that kind of hunger, right? They show a different kind. And, and I think it, the, the story has gotten much more complicated, but I remember seeing that, documentary for the first time in I think 2008, right? Like when I was sort of just beginning my, my anti-hunger journey, it really changed my mind in how documentary and filmmaking and art can come together to present a social issue in a way that actually changed people's minds, right? As it relates to changing policy, as it re relates to changing people's activism and ways they engage in a, in a really important social issue that I think actually hadn't, probably has not been around since, until until something like maybe Inconvenient Truth, right? Which was, God, now 20 years ago. Time flies when- When bad stuff strains. is happening. <laughs> 
you know, even though that documentary was made a long time ago and maybe you haven't seen the change that we want since then, seems like a good example of something illuminating a topic that was misunderstood or invisible before. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we'll find in our conversation with Santana today that uh, when Claude got shot has that same power to make more visible the complexity of gun violence and how we are not supporting the lives of black boys and how a victim grapples with the question of forgiveness. So mm -hmm. looking forward to getting into all of that incredible complexity with Santana today after the break. Elizabeth, why don't you tell us more about Santana? Sure thing. Based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Santana Coleman has been a filmmaker since 2013 and a vivid storyteller since a child. With a BA in media studies, Santana enjoys any opportunity to create content that aims to empower, uplift, and inspire the Black community. Co-producer of the Emmy-nominated documentary, When Claude Got Shot, she currently serves as the Impact Campaign Advisor at the League on the Film, produced by 371 Productions and executive produced by Snoop Dogg. When Claude Got Shot premiered at South by Southwest in March 2021 and on PBS in May 2022. That film is funded by Sundance, the Ford Foundation, ITVS, and other well-respected documentary funders. Along with a creative partner, Santana is the co-creator of comedy television series, Black Girl Training. Currently, she is in pre-production on the short film, The Last Week, where Santana will serve as writer, director, and producer in her directorial debut. After the break, Santana Coleman. Welcome Santana to Imagine This Podcast. Thank you, I'm very excited to be here. This is the first time I've actually ever reached out to a podcast and said, "Hey, can I be on your podcast?" No, no, it's great. It's great. We 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 actually get a lot of pitches that they come to our email. This is the first time I think that somebody has sort of reached out through Facebook. So so we're adding that to the to the way to reach out to us is hit us up on Facebook. Slide into our DMs. <laughs> I'm glad I could be a part of the history of how you intertwined yeah. <laughs> Facebook to, uh, wow. contacting methods. That's awesome. David's kicking it off live. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're so excited, Santana, to have you on the show today to speak about when Claude got shot and your involvement in that production and all the things you're up to in the world of production. But before we get into that, we would love if you could take a step back and tell us a story of an arts or cultural experience in your own life that's left a strong imprint on you. I mean, the first thing I think of when you say that is the movie that I have now as an adult realized probably is what shaped me as a creator and kind of made me want to be a filmmaker. And that is the movie Friday, Ice Cube's Friday. It was something that, it was definitely not a kid-friendly movie. I don't know how we were <laughs> on it, don't ask, but <laughs> it was something we watched a lot as kids, you know, me and my cousins and my grandmother's house. You know, it was like a routine that every night we would, you know, watch that. And we had other movies we watched too, but it was something about that movie that just stuck with, with us. 
something about it that just made us laugh so hard. And it, it really just became a staple in my life for the rest of my life. It's still like one of my all-time favorite movies. It's still something that just brings immense joy to my life. And I don't think I watched it and was like, oh, I want to be a filmmaker as soon as I watched it. But it was just something that really bonded me and my cousins. It was something that, I don't know, it was just so important to our upbringing. Like I said, I, it's something that is just a fond memory when I think mm. back. Um, and it wasn't until I got older and really started to have interviews like this and get asked questions like that and just think about it more that I realized that like, that was probably the first film that made me like fall in love with film mm. and see the power of film and how it can like bond you with other people and bond you to experiences and times in your life and things like that. And I think that is a part of what made me want to be a filmmaker. So mm. I give all the credit to that movie. Nice. So not only did that film, you know, kind of expose you to the vocabulary of filmmaking and what, what is, what, what goes into making a film, but I'm sure that's also been fodder for, you know, private jokes between you and your cousins. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That movie has the most, (laughs) well, I'll say that chain of movies has the most insiders I've ever (laughs) experienced. Like me and my husband always go back and forth with the insiders from that movie. And what's funny, if I could just tell a really quick funny story, I have a niece who is 13. And uh, a few weeks ago, I said a Friday reference to something she said, and she took it so literal. She's like, what do you mean? Like, she was so confused. And I was like, have you never seen Friday? Who are you? And my son is about to be eight next week. And he's seen Friday again. I know (laughs) that's super child appropriate, but it is so important to the culture that it's one of those movies that's like, you just have to know. And you don't totally understand what's going on when you're younger until you get older. But it's something that you just have to see because it's such a cultural staple. And the fact that my 13 year old niece did not know what I was talking about. I was just like, who are you? As her aunt, did you tell her to like cancel all her plans and come over to your basement? And I, I almost couldn't talk to her anymore. I, 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 I was so speechless. I forgot to say you need to go watch this. Like, yeah. So, that's so that, funny. That's how important it is. I have a, a good friend of mine, one of my oldest friends in my life. I we. We, I mean, who doesn't love Friday, right? But we also love Next Friday, and yes. there's a segment. We'll we'll hopefully try to link to it in in the in the show notes. But there's a segment where Mike Apps is talking to Ice Cube. It's at the beginning of the movie, and he's talking about you know cupcake in the in the neighborhood, right? And he's like, you know, cupcake's got line on all the next level snacks, right? Like he's got like the the ho hos with the glitter that comes out of it, you know. And and for whatever reason, that is a thing that just killed me and my friend Ethan. Like over time, like we just couldn't stop laughing at it. And every time we said we'd see each other, we'd be like, cupcakes up that new hostess with the with the glitter coming out of it. And we just can't stop ourselves, right? It is one of those things that like the movie just like both those movies, right, have these moments where just like they become these cultural touchstones that, you know, amongst friends, right, just start th- these inside jokes that, that last forever. And that's, that's really something powerful about about the, these films that that that, that have uh, that sort of become a part of our lives in that way, right? They, they've sort of become a part of our reference points, what we find funny, how we relate to each other. Yes, I, I love that you guys, <laughs> that that became a part of your life. Uh, that writing is amazing. And the acting, because I know a lot of them <laughs> probably improv as well. <laughs> so let's take us back, right? So Santana watches Friday, loves the the cinematic stylings of F. Gary Gray and, and Ice Cube and, and Chris Tucker and the, and the whole crew. How do you sort of parlay that love into this sort of uh, into this professional artistic trajectory that you have? Like what 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 was your path that led you 
to becoming a filmmaker, right? Having watched those movies and, and kind of being so engaged in, in the cinematic art form. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's very loaded. So basically the first memory I used to have of like wanting to be a filmmaker is a memory I always tell when like I was in, in middle school and I don't remember if we had like a career day or something. It's like, mm. it's kind of foggy. It feels like it might've been a dream or it might've been a dream. <laughs> I don't even know if it really happened, but I just remember something happening at my middle school. I remember the classroom. I can picture it so vividly. And I feel like we might've had a career day where somebody came and said they were a filmmaker. And all of a sudden I decided I want to be a filmmaker. Mm. I wanted to direct. I wanted to be the person to make all the creative decisions. I don't remember if that happened or not. <laughs> and it didn't. And again, it didn't fully translate to me how important Friday was, which was before this middle school experience. Oh, well, um, yeah. But that was the story I had always stuck to as to like the moment I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I had always been pretty much a storyteller. I've really been like understanding that about myself lately that I've always told really long stories or I was always the butt of the joke in the family that I had really long stories. And I used to write stories. I wrote books. I wrote poetry. I just did so many things like that. And I never realized how it translated to film until now, like I said. So I think now I can correlate how Friday and all the storytelling things that I was doing back in the day kind of mm. came together. Um, documentary, I got into, you know, I kind of fell into it. The long story short of that is that I did a documentary in college for a um Oh, what is that called? The class that you take where you get to decide what you learn. Free study. What is it called? Independent study. Independent study. <laughs> For independent study class, I decided to do a documentary in college. That was also kind of on accident. Honestly, I just mm-hmm. said, I- I'll make a film, I guess. And I just kind of taught <laughs> myself along the way. Like it really was like just something fun to do, I guess. And I taught mm-hmm. myself along the way. And I have to shout out Russell Hill, who was my boss at the time at Media Studies at UW Platteville, he taught me how to edit and let me use his his editing suite, his office after hours. So I would be there every night editing. And then, you know, after school, I got the job at 371 just from knowing someone who knew someone Mm -hmm. who knew someone and just saying, hey, I want to be in film. And so I also kind of fell into that. But my dream was always to do fictional film. It wasn't documentary initially. And so I think now that I'm now that one claw got shot is done and I am independently getting into fictional film. Now it's starting to correlate more. Now it's starting to be like, okay, this is where that came from. So I hope that answers your question. I know I skipped around a lot. (laughs) So, so in that independent study class, had you, had you taken some filmmaking classes or were you just like, I'm going to make a movie. I'm going to, you know, just start telling some stories and, and figure out how to do it. I was so brave now that I look yeah. back and think about yeah. it. I had not taken any filmmaking class. Well, when I was in high school, we had a place here in Milwaukee called Strive Media. I was involved in that. I went to a pre-college program at UW Stevens Point that was a film TV camp. But all of that stuff just kind of, I mean, Strive Media was pretty legit, but mm-hmm. it all kind of didn't feel like what I wanted to do. So I, I guess when I say I didn't take any classes prior, it's because I didn't feel like I had taken any classes prior. I didn't feel prepared to make a movie. I just was brave enough to say, I'm going to make this movie. This was probably my sophomore year of college. And I went to a college. I went to UW Platteville. They did not have a film program. They didn't have anything film related. That's, again, a whole nother story as to why I went there. But, you know, I went there for other reasons, understanding that I was taking a shot at, like, not learning what I wanted to learn. Yeah. So 
the school did not have a film program. It didn't have anything film related. After a few years, they started to get some film stuff. Um, they So then when I graduated, by the time I graduated, I had majored in media studies, which was mostly broadcast stuff, honestly, mm. was my film. A lot of telethons, a lot of <laughs> news mm. stuff, a lot of shooting stuff on campus and just editing together videos, things like that. And then we had a film studies minor that I graduated with. Yeah, so there was a film studies minor and that was literally studying film. So I still wasn't mm-hmm. learning how to make film. I was learning how to study film. And I and that was pretty helpful. You know, it was helpful, but I don't even think I was taking those classes by the time I decided I'm going to make a documentary. So making that documentary in class was so random, but my teacher was amazing. She pretty much gave me like the whole next semester to finish it. And mm-hmm. so I had a lot of time to really just kind of trial and error things. And then I was able to make it. And actually, it turned out so good that the teachers at the campus started to offer it as like a extra credit if, if kids want to go see it. So, yeah, it was it was an experiment, I think, <laughs> that just worked out, basically. I think as, as somebody who also studied film, I don't know if you know this movie, but I wanted to be I, I originally wanted to be a filmmaker, but landed in nonprofit arts administration. And, and I think Elizabeth also has a film background. So you're talking to people who. Who've, 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 who've studied and who wanted to do filmmaking. And I think there's something about the work of filmmaking, which is you need those reps, right? Like you need to know how to like shoot a scene. You need to know how to like edit something. And that all takes practice. And it almost feels like in some ways, like the teaching of it is almost secondary, right? If you can get out in these streets and like, just like do some stuff and like try to tell a story. And if you can tell a story visually and sort of like do the work of putting it together, then you know, you got the talent, right? So I think that's that, that's a really incredible story about just the bravery, right? Of just being like, yeah, I want to do yeah. a thing. I'm going to go do it. I'm not that brave anymore. I don't know. What <laughs> I, I really don't. Like, I can't even imagine how I just sat there. I prob- It probably because at the time I was doing it for the love of it. And I just said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just going to do it. And it's for a grade. It's the mm-hmm. stakes aren't super high. I just want to do it. And now that I'm in it, it's like, oh, you need funding. You have to hire these people. It's all so scary. What's going to happen after? Are people going to like it? Are they going to, it's it's a mm-hmm. whole thing now. And now I'm like, I don't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it scares the bejeebus out of me to like do it <laughs> on my own. So as a, a follow-up to David's question, you know, in, in filmmaking, as you sort of climb up through the, I guess, through the ladder of filmmaking and, and find your niche, a lot of people end up trying on many different hats. You know, you hear about people who are eventually, uh, you know, directors who started as screeners. Were there parts of filmmaking that you tried that maybe kind of informed the producer that you've become? That is a great question. And it's so funny because I just started to, again, realize that about myself. It did not inform the producer I became because the way that my career has taken off Producing was kind of one of the first things I jumped into, and I just so happened to be good at it and enjoy it and things like that. And I'm still learning. Don't get me wrong. I I was the co-producer on the film versus a producer for a reason. It was my first film straight out of college. I actually came onto the project when Claude got shot as an intern. I walked the stage early at UW-Platteville, came back to Milwaukee, started at 371 as an intern on when Claude got shot. And because I was no longer in school, it kind of turned into a job right after and then I became the associate producer or no, I think I started out as like a 
production assistant or something after interning and then our producer left. So I had got bumped up to associate producer. And then after a few years, I kind of was like, hey, I'm getting the hang of this. I'm really doing a lot of work here. You know, can I be a producer? And Brad gave me an amazing explanation as to why I could not be a producer. (laughs) But eventually he met me halfway and said, you know, I do appreciate all the work you've been doing. You've Mm. been doing amazing. Um, You're not fully there yet, but I think you deserve a co-producer title. And so that's Mm. how I got that. But after producing and during producing, I started to get into impact. And now I also do impact on one clock I shot. I'm really enjoying that. That might be something I want to get into in the future. I co-created a series called Black Girl Training with a a Mm -hmm co-creator of mine and we initially started to write the first episode together that was something I thought maybe I want to be a writer then I hated it and was like I don't think I ever want to write again (laughs) and then now I'm back to writing because then I end up writing a short film two short films and I'm Mm -hmm. about to shoot one in a few months and that will also be my directorial debut so I'm Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in that space that you said like I'm trying out these different roles because I'm like I realize how there are so many roles in film And I always said I wanted to be a director and I haven't even got a chance to do that yet, but I've already found so many different areas that I really enjoy. And Mm -hmm. so at this point, I kind of am now, instead of saying, hey, this is my top goal, I'm kind of trusting the process and I'm kind of trusting God to keep leading me into what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'll figure it out somewhere along the way. (laughs) So when when Claude Gottschalk came out, it seemed to really make a big splash, right? I mean, obviously from, from the, the moment of its creation back uh, to South by to even just the context in which the, the documentary happened, right. And the, right. the ability for, for um, the, just all of it coming together in a way that, that took a, a pretty terrible situation and, and, and has sort of been able to spin this, this, this unique, very unique story about, the impact of gun violence on, you know, many people's lives and how intertwined it is. Right. Yeah. When the film was released, did you all have a sense that, that it would, that it would sort of get the reception that it did? Is there anything that surprised you about the reception that it got? Before I answer this question, I have to thank you, David, because this is the first time I've been asked this question. And this is the question I have been waiting for. <laughs> it seems very simple. But this is the question. When I was working on When Claw Got Shot, before it even came out, when I first heard about the film, I knew it was going to be big and amazing and everything. Mm. And I told myself, when I have an interview and somebody asks me, could you have imagined that this, I am going to be like, yes, because I've never seen an interview where someone has said, yeah, we knew it was going to be, they're always like, humble, <laughs> like, no, I didn't know, we knew it would be big, but not this big. No, it is not even done yet. And I'm putting that out in the universe. Mm. It's not even where it is going to be yet. So yes, I did know that. I knew that before Mm. it even came out. Mm. And honestly, when we were at South by Southwest, I mean, although pretty amazing, of course, it was a virtual thing. It didn't even, this was my first film and I was kind of disappointed that I didn't even get that opportunity to like, oh my God, a big film festival. Oh my God, Mm -hmm. red carpets, whatever. Premieres. Um, I threw myself a premiere party with a red carpet and my family and friends. And that was amazing. But I didn't feel that around South by Southwest, we were getting sure. our just do just yet, but I was still excited. I was still grateful. Everything. I do feel like it amped up, amped up a lot more around our PBS premiere, because by that point, the world was opened up a little more. We had tons of press around that. We were working on impact. So we had a lot of things we were doing on impact side to like amp up the PBS 
now we're gearing up for streaming and it's the same process that we're like, yeah. you know, really trying to make it a big thing. Then the Emmy nomination. So I think everything that's happening, I knew was going to happen or I hoped because I genuinely believed in this project and I genuinely mm-hmm. saw how amazing it was, but I still think we're climbing, right? We're not totally there yet. So the documentary grapples with the incredible pain of gun violence through Claude's unique story of him having to grapple with the physical, mental, and legal aftermath of the shooting while also coming to forgiveness. Yes. So as a producer, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it was like to be so close to such an intensely difficult topic for such a long time. How did you support your own well-being? How did how did the whole crew and and you know the figures who are featured in the film support their own well-being or create a culture of well-being while the film is being made? Yeah. That's a great question. So when I came onto the project, uh, I came on January 2016. By this point, they had already been filming for a year and a half. And I remember my first day on the job, we were reviewing footage. And so that, I think, in itself had gave me the, the inkling that, oh, my God, this is amazing. Very sad, of course, but like an amazing story here. And we're going to build it out to just be continuously amazing. I think at the time I was so in my head about, oh my God, my first movie, woo, this is so cool, that I probably wasn't grappling with what was happening. Mm. I was always very, very close to gun violence because number one, I grew up in Milwaukee. That's Mm. an unfortunate truth that most people here are desensitized or just used to gun violence. Um, I've had tons of friends and family who have been on both sides of the gun. So I was shamefully kind of used to it. It just felt like a norm, unfortunately. And so I think I was more in my like, oh my God, this is a, my first film kind of bag. Mm-hmm. Then as I started to work on it and get to know the characters, that's when things started to hit. That's when I was no longer just an audience or a person behind the scenes who watched the footage. Mm-hmm. I was talking to these people and that's when things became real. Claude had always been very resilient. And I know that, you know, sometimes that might not even feel like a compliment after going through something so traumatic, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to have to be resilient. But it was really tough to get to know Nathan's mom, um, mm-hmm. Regina. That was a different level for me because we started this film because Brad mm-hmm. and Claude had been friends for 20 years. And so they had a special relationship. And me and Claude have a special relationship as well. I mean, after all these years. But Regina and I instantly connected because we were both Black women. We both had sons. And I think I was able to understand her on a different level than anybody else on the project or, you know, in the media or whatever, that is when things just kind of got a little too real for me. Mm. And so as time went on, you know, I definitely had moments where I cried behind the scenes. I had moments where I cried while we were shooting. I had moments that while I, when I cried while we were like reviewing footage years later, because now I actually know these people. So there were moments, but I'll also say we're making a film. So it's not always sad. Sometimes it's just, you're doing your job, you're being technical, you're you know, planning things and doing things. And it doesn't feel like the weight of what the film is about is always there when you're not shooting. Mm -hmm. But in order to preserve my mental health, I consistently watch comedies. You know, I have to, (laughs) I have to indulge in like, I got to go back to the Friday. I got to go back to the things that are going to make me feel good and give me positive energy. And that's also why once I started to get out into other films, I chose a comedy TV series. I chose, you know, 
a romance movie as, you know, my short film. And so I started to kind of choose things that were a little more lighthearted intentionally. But at the end of the day, I always remembered that this film was powerful, although so heavy. And I think that is also kind of what got me through. Like there's a message at the end of this tunnel. Mm. So in the in the intro before before you joined, we were talking a little bit about like the power of films and moreover the power of documentaries to help inspire empathy and to help to change people's minds, right? And and I think, you know, you were talking a little bit about the the sort of impact phase of this film and 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 I think a little bit of like sort of looking at the the work of the league, right? Which which is which you're also a part of, um, which is about like creating cultural change through cultural engagement, civic change through cultural engagement, right? Yes. What do you think is the best sort of like outcome for somebody who sees this movie who might be a little bit like guns are uh, are a right, right? Or that, you know, we need them for hunting and like the, the gun violence that is being shown in this movie, while dreadful and, and really sad, is a Milwaukee problem. Like, what do you hope that this person gets out of, of watching this movie? Well, first of all, I will say whatever I'm about to say next is the opinion of my own. Of you. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say that I am a firm believer that guns don't kill people. People kill people. Mm. So while we definitely need gun reform, we definitely need some rules established about who can have guns, when, where, why, et cetera, et cetera. And there does not need to be so many guns out on the street. I definitely believe we need to be focusing on the people and the root causes of Mm. why people are using guns in the wrong way. I think anybody who sees this film needs to understand that gun violence is an everybody issue we need to understand that gun violence is targeting everyone. It is targeting everyone's family and you cannot escape it and you cannot choose to be a part of it or not be a part of it. One of the things we like to say that we've been saying at the league, at the league is that gun violence doesn't begin or end with a bullet. There are so many root causes as to why gun violence happens. And I think that we all have to kind of be a part of that solution. We all have to put our heads together and figure out how we can prevent gun violence from happening. One of the things Brad used to say at the beginning is that, you know, he really wanted to take a 30 second news story and make it way bigger and give you all the facts from behind the scenes. And that's what our film does, right? So Mm. I want people to be able to see the humanity and not only Claude, not only Victoria, not only Regina, but also Nathan, like, yeah, he made mistakes, but let's talk about how he got to that point, why he made those mistakes, why he made those decisions. And sometimes, unfortunately, people won't get it until it hits their family, until it hits their immediate family, until it hits them. But I'm hoping that because this is more than that 30 second news story, it doesn't just feel like, oh, that's sad. And then you go back to your Mm -hmm. life, but it really sticks with you. And it really makes you think about the 360 that is gun violence and makes you want to be a part of some type of change. I think the 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 thing that is so interesting, particularly about this movie, is that it's not just one side of the issue, right? It is all the different sides that 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 I think you have the guilt that obviously uh, the different parties feel, but also the impact of like what happens. You know, like it's just it is just it's sort of a a a, a, a really comprehensive I'm to your point right like typically this is a 30 second a couple carjacking stories right but it's actually it has such a a broader context of how people's lives are full are, are affected in their their own sort of like 
how their how their own lives are changed, right? And I think that, that there's no there are no easy answers to 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 this, right? It's just like, oh, it's yeah. really it's really Very rough, layered. yeah, yeah, Very layered, yeah. The violence is is not doesn't stop with the act of violence. Right. I mean, not to over dramatize, but being in medical debt that's that's a hardship. That's a horrible life changing hardship in and of itself, yeah. right? And I honestly say. Elizabeth, to one of your previous questions about how did I maintain my mental health? I'm not going to lie. The impact is harder than the production. Mm. The impact is so rewarding and amazing. And I'm loving this right now, Mm -hmm. but it is so much harder than the production because the production was just what it was, right? It was like, Mm -hmm. okay, we're going to shoot Claude talking about his medical bills or, oh, Mm -hmm. there's another surgery. We're going to shoot it. And again, at the end of the day, this was still my job. I still had to show up and set up some equipment and talk about today's times what are we eating for lunch today like it wasn't it wasn't all just like oh gun violence everywhere but impact is like being in the rooms having the conversations Mm -hmm. talking about like even like a lot of my colleagues from the league they send stuff when shootings happen they're like oh this happened in this city this Mm -hmm. happened in this in our slack channel and so it's like I'm constantly surrounded by it now. Mm-hmm. I'm having conversations about it. We're talking about, but but it, it's also so amazing because we're also talking about solutions. Mm. Um, I'm in the rooms with with criminals and, and formerly incarcerated people. And I've been to like juvenile detention centers and talking to people about this film. So it's so heavy right now, but it's also so, it gives me so much hope at the same time. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the impact work? Like how are yeah. how are you or or the league or, or 371 even like thinking about impact for this film, right? Like I, I think that's I, I I ask only because it's a it's a question that we have here at Imagine about like the impact of arts and culture sort of at a at a at a civic level. Yeah. And would just be curious to to see how you all are thinking about like the impact connected to this film, maybe more broadly around this, around the gun violence issue. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we are we are hyper focusing on Milwaukee because that's Mm. where the story takes place. But we are also branching out a little bit and doing a national campaign. A lot of our, you know, on the ground work is screenings, conversations, panels, Q&A's, things like that. But we're also doing a lot of events. First of all, we've commissioned True School youth to do a mural for us. So that will be being done soon. We are in the process of getting that final sketch together. And that will, you know, help bridge together community, hope, healing, Mm. and things like that. We are, you know, hosting different events where we're having the conversations about all the many layers in the film. So the, the, um, the gun violence, of course, again, the healing, the mental health, the medical bills, the, you know, gun rights, things like that. We are also, you know, joining a lot of different, like we were at the Heal the Hood block party. Um, So we're really trying to put ourselves out there and be more a part of the community as well. We have a lot of digital strategies going on. So we put together a host. I actually directed and produced. So actually I have directed before. <laughs> I directed and produced um, some short videos that we did surrounding Mother's Day, where we talked to four different moms about their experience with gun violence um, and put together some little clips on our social media. So you guys can definitely check that out. We are doing more digital series. We have a series coming up called When Blank Got Shot, where people get to personally mm. tell their stories of gun violence. We also have an explainer series coming up where we're using a comedian to kind of lightheartedly connect with the TikTok world to talk <laughs> about gun violence. 
So we just have tons and tons, and I know I'm missing a billion things as I talk about all of these things that we're doing, but we're also putting together some courtside conversations with uh, mm-hmm. different NBA teams where we have, you know, a little basketball, a little merch, uh, you know, coming together with some brands to hopefully bring that together. That's something in the works. So it's not official yet. So we just have tons of stuff going on. And I'll tell you, this is my first time doing impact. And I also had never been a person who was really into politics, but this, this experience has really brought together the intersection of politics, cultural filmmaking, you know, just all of that stuff in one. So there is just tons of things we're doing, tons of conversations we're having and just things that I'm really understanding more about gun violence. Mm -hmm. I'm just still learning how to talk about those things in interviews, I guess. Mm. Yeah. How powerful that you get to through these impact programs. And just as the film is getting out there, get to see the ripples of impact and, and people's responses to it. And also know and take heart that it's just the beginning of those conversations for many of those people. They're going to go back to their families and their friends and their networks and keep the discussion, keep the reflections going. Exactly. Yes. So I don't know if you know this, Santana, but here as a guest on our podcast, we have the power of making our guests the, the city's leader of arts and culture. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a problem with this power is that it only lasts until the end of this podcast episode. I mean, it's a great, great power, but it's very, very limited. So you have, a, as we're sort of wrapping up, you have maybe a minute or two of power left in your, in your, in your fingers. So, so you have to work quick, right? So now as our respected leader of arts and culture, what is the first policy or wish you would make to make Milwaukee a more vibrant and thriving place powered by arts and culture? Yeah, I would bring more productions here, more of the mainstream Hollywood productions here. I understand a t- very, very tiny bit about the film tax credits and things, mm. but I understand that that is the reason that a lot of people don't film here. I think that if we can again, this is very layered as well. And there's so many, (laughs) but if we could just like skip all the steps, right. Do everything we need to do to get there. We all understand there's a lot of steps to get there, but if we just brought some productions here, that will open up opportunities for jobs, for creators here, that would Mm -hmm. open up opportunities for the world to see Milwaukee in a different light. A lot of people don't know that we have a film scene here, although, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of small, we do have a film scene here. A lot of people don't know that there are black people in Milwaukee with, which is so crazy to me. I get that so often when I go, when I travel different places. And so we just need something that is going to highlight what it's like to live in the Midwest, to live in Milwaukee, um, especially as a person of color. I just feel like having different productions here would help us on so many different fronts. So that would be my little superpower thing. I think we, I think we can join you in that proclamation, (laughs) Santana. I I think it is, uh, it is something that, that we, are committed to here at Imagine to make uh, our film industry more more vibrant and and more robust. Um, and I think to your point about like how how we sort of begin to change um, our community's sort of awareness and and sort of their mindsets about the power of film as a creative industry. I mean, Elizabeth was just talking about it in the intro about how 
film is the one art form that really kind of like encapsulates all of the other kinds of art forms, yeah. right? Like it requires music, it requires people to write, it requires people to like make things and like edit and there's technical stuff. There's all the stuff, right? And as a, as an industry, we have so, so many powerful and, and creative people such as yourself working in this industry. And uh, we, we want to be able to, to have more projects to be able to, to, to support folks like you. So um, we are just super excited to, be, to join you in, in working on that proclamation. So thank you for that. Really appreciate thank it. You. And I'll lastly add, I am doing my part in that by number one, creating projects that are Milwaukee based. Yeah. Um, all of my projects are based in Milwaukee, whether fictional or non-fictional. I make sure I'm intentional that, you know, things are now, it might not always be that way. I'm not making a pledge to all of them, <laughs> but I will say Milwaukee made me, and right now all of my stories are Milwaukee-based. And secondly, when it comes to my series, Black Girl Training, me and my partner Emily are committed to making sure that we are filming in Milwaukee. We are trying to sell that to a network or studio, so I know that at the end of the day, we might not be able to, but our hope is that we're going to go in there and say, this is a Milwaukee story, and it's very important that it is shot in Milwaukee and it stays based in Milwaukee because we, we see the importance in that. And thank you guys for all that you do in helping the art community here in Milwaukee as well. Hey, if we, if we hear that, that black girl training is being shot in Detroit, we're, we're going to send you a, a, a nasty email about like, Hey, Hey, what's up with that? <laughs> or, or Atlanta or, or any other place that, that has some incentive. I know, right? Chicago. Um, Minnesota. <laughs> Before we let you go though, Santana, how can folks find find you? How can they find information about when Claude got shot, Black Girl Training, and the last week? Yeah. So for more information about when Claude got shot, you can go to uh, our website. That's the best way to go. It's whenclawgotshot.org to learn more information. We unfortunately don't have any public screenings going on right now or any way you can publicly see it. But if you would like to see it, email me and I'll, I'll make it happen. You know, we are doing screenings. If people want to host screenings, we, we definitely can do that. And then to find me, you can find me on Facebook at Santana Wilson Coleman, or you can find me on Instagram at Santana the Creator, or my website, SantanaTheCreator.com. Awesome. Yes. Thanks so much, Santana, for your time today. Thank you, guys. This is awesome. As we come back from our incredible conversation with Santana, I've, I've just been greeted on our t- internal team chat that Elizabeth was LOLing at me that I was that had uh, that I had my Mick Foley doll in my hand as I was just gesticulating. <laughs> For the listeners, David, who is Mick Foley? Mick Foley is one of the greatest uh, American wrestlers of all time, formerly known <laughs> as as Cactus Jack in Mankind. He used to. As mankind, he used to have a, a sock on his hand that would you'd give the mandible claw to people. <laughs> See, I I knew nothing about wrestling until I started working at Imagine, and I'm amazed that even though it was just a, a little glimpse of that doll in your hand, I I knew <laughs> I knew it was a wrestling figurine. I knew. But back to the conversation with Santana, that yeah. was fantastic. What mm-hmm. a what an amazing amazing artist and filmmaker. And dynamic too, right? I mean, like yes. I think the the thing we were talking a little bit in the in the um in the in the pause time about how just you know how much gumption you have to have as a filmmaker, right? You, you're just sort of like 
I'm going to go do it. And, and that's just it. Right. Like, and, and I think the, her, her proclamation as um, arts and culture leader, I think is just a, just a really powerful, I think, vision for our, mm-hmm. for our Milwaukee community, right? Like Milwaukee yeah. is a film town. Yeah. Yeah. Timely. It does feel like as we're all somewhat emerging from this, this pandemic and several years of relative lockdown or, you know, some pretty crazy years <laughs> <laughs> returning to quote unquote normal. Um, it seems like a really exciting time for the film industry in Milwaukee to just level up. Yeah. And I think the, the level, the level is up, right? It, it's, it's the, it's how do we actually get right. the, the, the sense of, or not the sense, but how do we get productions to see Milwaukee and Wisconsin as a, as a viable place to film? And and that right. is, all, I mean, she said it, right? It is all about mm-hmm. incentives um, to attract productions to our to our state. And to that end, we've been doing some really interesting work that is just about to get more public pretty soon, um, <laughs> working with some of our film stakeholders here in town to to figure out how we might be able to reintroduce mm-hmm. or, or re, re figure out how we can get incentives back here in Wisconsin mm. to make us more regionally competitive. I want to correct myself because when I said level up, I didn't mean the actual filmmakers and production staffs need to level up, but in the eyes of places outside of Milwaukee, in the concept, you know, of this place, how how it's seen from the outside, that's where I feel like there's there's a growth opportunity, right? Yeah. You know who needs to level up? It's the it's our legislators who who do not actually right. like recognize how how much the film industry could be of benefit to right. to our region, right? And I think that that that's the thing that that I think is really interesting is that like you know we're we we are bending over backwards to get these major conventions here into town, right? Whether it's the DNC, whether it's the RNC, where wherever you stand on, on that, right? I mean. People understand that when 50,000 people come to town, it creates an economic impact, right, for our mm-hmm. region, which is why we want these conventions to come into town. And I think the way we've been thinking about these about these film incentives is that it's we're not attracting 50,000 people to come into town one over a week, right? What we mm-hmm. want to do is attract 50 productions of 1,000 people to come to town uh, week over week, month over month. And that is the thing that's mm-hmm. going to create that kind of economic stimulus and spend, yes. um, not only in our hotels and restaurants, but also provide the work for folks like Santana um, yeah, to actually help to help them develop their creative practice and mm-hmm. be able to tell the stories they want to tell. Right. And right. so I think that's just incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We want more fluidity to realizing the vision right, right. here. Right here that's in Milwaukee. right. That's right. And we don't want folks like Santana to, to leave, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't want her to shoot her film and or her TV show in, in Detroit. Heck no. Detroit. <laughs> we we love our, our our Great Lakes friends, but we just don't love it when they when they when they take our filming. We don't want yeah, we don't want Milwaukee <laughs> stories told with a Detroit backdrop. Correct. That we won't stand Correct. for. Nope. Correct. Nope. You can add us about that, Detroit, the you Detroit listeners to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> visit Detroit's like wait a us second. right now <laughs> wait a second <laughs> I can't wait to see the film I'm really I'm really excited about that prospect and what a cool thing to offer yeah. to our listeners the opportunity to have their own viewing parties yeah what an amazing generous generous thing that's really great right like and, and also this is what you get when you listen to our podcast you get special <laughs> access 
yeah, for such a heavy and complex uh, and difficult topic, just it, it gives me a sense of, mm, I guess, a sense of comfort knowing that that you know all these conversations are going to be sparked by people seeing this and talking within their own communities about how they can help our society heal and move in a direction away from from gun violence and towards violence prevention. Yeah. You know who else gives me comfort? Our listeners. <laughs> Thanks for listening, y'all. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review, or contact us directly at pod at imaginemke.org. Imagine This Podcast is hosted by David Lee, Lindsay Sheridan, and Elizabeth Gasparka, me. The show is produced and edited by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Bobby Drake. To catch all the latest from Imagine MKE, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Imagine underscore MKE or Facebook at Imagine MKE. Slide in those DMs. Again, thank you all. And we will catch you next Tuesday on our season finale when we have our uh, season four finale guest join us to talk about how incredible our arts and culture scene is here in Milwaukee. Can't wait to see you then. Thanks, y'all. Ho-hos with the glitter that comes out of it. It was an experiment, I think. <laughs> it just worked out, basically.